look, I'm not the person that I used to be. I think as a youngster, I definitely had a real big chip on my shoulder. And I think a lot of that just had to do with my childhood here in Albury and just, you know, being... That was for me, if I, if I showed this angry, scary face, people would stay away. But I was never like that. I was normally just so scared that, you know, and I didn't want anyone really to sort of even notice me. That's just how I was. I had a chip on my shoulder. I played like that. I just didn't want anyone to be able to touch me. Sports fans and welcome to Quinny's Cult Heroes. Thanks to the Ladbrokes Listen Network. Our very special guest today, an absolute superstar of Australian sport, a warm welcome to Lauren Jackson. Hello. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming, Lauren. Now, if I read through your list of achievements, we wouldn't have time to ask any questions. It would take that long. I don't think I've ever seen a longer Wikipedia page, but it's going to be a great <laughs> chat today. Cannot wait. And I think we might start about your career before you were even a part of it. I want to talk about your parents because both your yep. parents played basketball for Australia and your mum, Marie, was Lauren Jackson before there was Lauren Jackson. Yes, she was. She Mum was one of two women who went over to play college in America, the first Australian woman to go and play college in America in the NCAA at Louisiana State University. So she she's a trailblazer for sure. She captioned Australia and played at world championships and things like that. So... Yes, I was. Um, I definitely was very lucky to have um, her and my dad um, as parents, you know, because there was no visibility of women's sport in those days in the 80s. And um, I had designs to play in the NBA, and nobody ever said to me that I couldn't do it. So, you know, representation matters, that's what they say. So, from a young age, how aware were you that she was that good? Because she holds state records still, some scoring records that haven't been knocked off to this day. So, she wasn't just good, she was an absolute star and it's reflected that there are still yeah. awards for the under-18s named after it. Was, was it this? very front and centre in your mind that she was such a superstar? And Gary as well obviously played for Australia, so I'm not undermining his achievements, but was that really aware to you or did you just grow up thinking, oh yeah, that's just what mum and dad did? Yeah, I think I... Look, I come from a very a small town in Albury, uh, in New South Wales, and mum, I always knew that she was good at something at basketball because I think from the... I think the second week I was born alive, you know, she had taken me on a road trip to go and play basketball. So I was literally, and I mean, I was a 10 pound baby and she had me naturally and then played basketball two weeks later, which is unheard of in this day and age. But I I literally grew up around basketball stadiums. So I think I didn't necessarily know how good she was, but I knew it was a massive part of her life and it became a massive part of my life. And my children are probably now sort of experiencing that. However, they've got more sort of access to YouTube clips and things like that. So they sort of understand a little bit more, you know, what I do. You're one of our great Olympians. You went to four Olympics, you carried the flag. So the Olympics are a big part of your story. Is it a little bit of redemption as well on your mum's behalf because she was really robbed of the opportunity to go to the 1980 Games? Yeah, look, I, I think so. And then she was sort of uh, it was 84 as well. Like I think she uh, missed out on those. She decided just to um, retire from the national team and raise her kids, me and my brother. And um, and then in I think they hadn't made it to the 84 Olympics and then everybody boycotted and then Australia got through and she missed out on her opportunity to go and that was like right in the prime of her career. So I think there was an element of um, – of that, but you know, my mum, she's the sort of person that she's so tough and she's so strong, and she would never um, mention that. Like, she's just always been so supportive of me, um, right from day dot. And 
you know, I think it has been a little bit of a, you know, for her, it's been amazing to watch me achieve what I have, but I would never have been able to do it without her or my dad, you know, and the support that they've given me over the years. Um, they've been remarkable and, you know, I really don't know how she feels. I ask <laughs> her how she feels about missing out and she'll sort of like say, yeah, you know, it wasn't great, but it's it's nothing to her, but it probably does mean something, you know. I'm sure it filled her with pride watching you do so well at those four Olympics. Now, what was it like in the early days? You mentioned you're from Albury, which is a relatively small town, and you're our greatest ever basketballer. Did you simply dominate the sport from day dot, and was it hard no. at time to find good competition? No, not at all. You know what? I even missed out on teams. I missed out on Riverina teams, school teams. Um, I missed out on state teams, sort of from 10 to I want to say 12, and then I don't know how I got picked up in a New South Wales um, intensive training program pretty young, so I would have been about 12 and a half, like hitting on 13, and then and then when I turned 13, I got invited to an Australian junior, like an under-20s camp. There was only one Australian junior team then, um, and it was 20 and under, and um, they brought me in at 13 for, for that cycle, and I made that first team, that trip to America, and um, from there, I just I never missed out on a team again. Um, it, you know, I think once I got on that sort of that cycle, you just don't get off. You're on the ride, and you just go. You know, and I think I was very apprehensive. I was afraid. I never wanted to leave my parents' side, but you know, the reality was that I had to get out of Aubrey and um, go to the AIS, and then just live you know start playing um and I think I was so blessed because I got to play against women we were the AIS team when we were 15 we were playing against grown women and and girls tend to develop a lot sooner than what boys do physically so having that opportunity to play in the WNBL and really um I guess upskill very quickly learn how how you play that international style professional level game um, it really worked for me. You know, I was in the Australian team. Um, by that time I was 15, I was in the squad. My first team was when I was 16 and that was it. Like it was just, I was on the ride and I just took it, you know. How did it go moving from Albury to the AIS? Because I can imagine for a girl that sounds like she was quite close to her family and not overly outgoing despite her magnificent sporting no. abilities, <laughs> it must have been a big step. Yeah, look, um, I think school was really tough for me here. You know, I was definitely um, a bit of an outcast for sure. Very tall girl, obviously. Um, I, you know, I had a great little friendship group, but I was definitely picked on. I didn't have a great time at school. So for me at 15, leaving home was probably the best thing that happened to me. Um, looking back, it was hard leaving my mom and dad, but Every weekend they would try and get to Canberra. My poor brother, you know, he sort of, once I'd left, mum and dad were really focused on supporting me as much as they could. Um, and I think he missed out a little bit, which, you know, wasn't great, but he's, you know, he's got his head on his shoulder as well. He's a good guy. and But they really did everything they could to support me. And it was, I mean, I, I for me, the AIS was the best thing that ever happened to me, really. I, I had the time of my life there and, um, you know, it set me up for the career ahead. And from there, it just went gangbusters almost instantly. As you mentioned, you're in the Australian squad at the age of 15. So did you have to pinch yourself or was it just one of those things where you just go kept going through the grades so quickly? It was just the next step for you. My mum, because I told you, like I said before, my mum was really tough. You know, she's a tough player. She's still tough. Like there's, I could tell you some stories that, 
you know, whenever anyone from the old school sort of say, oh, you know, I played against your mum, more often than not men like that were training against her from around here, they'd be like, oh, she broke my nose. She did this, she did that. <laughs> like she was everyone that came across that had their nose broken. Um, and she, I guess she was coaching me in under 14s um, and she'd said to me, you'll never play for Australia. You'll never represent Australia because you're weak, you know, because I was playing against, they get men to come in like fathers of our, all the girls to come in and train against us and one of the dads blocked me and I cracked it you know and mum was really disappointed in the way that I behaved and I was like you can't block girls like why are you blocking 13 year old girls you know and she didn't like that she still doesn't like when I speak up um (laughs) anyway she's like with that attitude you'll never play for Australia and then we got home and there was a letter from the Australian team um inviting me into that junior camp and there's been a lot of stories like that along the way um Look, honestly, they were the they were the best parents to have um, because I think they brought out that resilience in me and that toughness. But they were never overbearing and they never pushed me into it. It was more like you can't behave like that and be a good teammate. Um, so they taught me a lot, and yeah, I was I was ready for it. Now that dad that you rejected, yeah, do you think when you won your third <laughs> NBA WMVP, he's probably in a pub somewhere going, yeah, but I rejected her. When she was 13, yeah. So I've still got a bit of a chip on my shoulder about that. It's funny because even when we play guys like practice games and stuff, if a guy comes to block me, he'll get one in the tummy. Like I'm... Now, as all this is happening, the Sydney Olympics are just around the corner. Can you remember the first time you thought, hang on a sec, I might be a part of this dream? Yeah, I can't remember when they announced it. When did um, when did he announce it? It was like early. Was it 90? I want to say it was 93 or 94. Something like that. Remember. One Antonio Samaranch. Yeah, yeah. So I remember being in bed with mum. I, I think dad had gone away or something had happened and I'd slept with my mum, which was my children still sleep with me. I don't know. It's a thing. I just love it. <laughs> um, and... That ha- it came on the morning news, and um, I said to my mum, "I'm going to play for Australia. I'm going to, I'm going to be there." And she's like, "Oh yeah, right, you know." Um, but I think when you just say it and speak something into existence, you can make it happen. Um, and for me, with sport, like if I've put my mind to something, um, I've been able to to achieve it. I mean, when I was younger, I definitely had the like the capability. I was talent, very talented. Um, and but you know I didn't work as hard as I probably should have. But when you're young, you just do what you got to do, um, you know, to get through. And then, yeah. So it's I think, like I said, anything that I sort of put my mind to, I was able to achieve. And then it did eventuate. You were selected in the squad. Do you remember the opening ceremony and the hype going into those games? Oh gosh, um, I was selected. No, I can't. You know, it's funny. A lot of the greatest moments in my career, I don't remember. I have got no recollection of them, and it's funny because I go back and watch YouTube stuff occasionally. There wasn't a lot from around there, but um, I don't. It doesn't really evoke any emotion in me because I don't remember it. I actually don't remember walking out into the stadium. Um, the only uh, true like really amazing thing I remember was um, walking around during London when I was a flag bearer, I think, because it was just such a incredible time. But like other high moments, like winning championships and things like that, I don't have a great recollection of at all. That's amazing. So we'll skip, we'll come back to this, but just as an example, if I was to talk about the first time you won the WNBA title with Seattle and Gary Glitter's Blair and everyone's going nuts, if you were to watch that back, would it almost be like you're watching it for the first time? 
Yeah, it would be. Um, there's moments in that first championship I remember because I stuffed up. I stuffed up the play and I got like someone got open and, and shot a three to um, to win that game, which would have just been, you know, devastating. But I, I do remember that moment where, um, where she, you know, I didn't switch out and she got this open three. And um, I do get reminded from my teammates a little bit because, yeah, it's just one of those things. But... I, it's the highs, like it's bizarre. I, I do not remember them. It's like the after parties and the things like that I just have no recollection of. You, I could not tell you what we did after that game. I can't tell you what I did for a week or two after that game. It was just, yeah, a blur. That is amazing because I can understand it during the game because you're hyped up, it's the adrenaline, you're focused. But I find it strange you can't remember things like the opening ceremony where mm. you're almost just part of the crowd and part of the spectacle. I know, I know. Um, I have like moments, you know, I remember in the Commonwealth Games, the Queen was there in 2006 and Erin Phillips and I were like, we love you, Queenie. Like it's just <laughs> random stuff like that that I remember. Um, but then, yeah, like the the most, the majority of it I don't remember. And, and more often than not, I've got teammates and friends coming up to me and saying, oh, I remember when we did this. And I was like, God, I must have been a pretty cool person because I actually don't remember any stuff and it seems like that would be a lot of fun. So... Yeah, bizarre. Now, how did the Sydney Games change your life? Because up until then, you were a star basketballer, but for sports fans across the country, a lot of people got to see you play realistically then for the first time, realised how brilliant you were, realised you're on the cusp of going number one in the NBA draft, WNBA draft the next season. Did you find that changed how famous you became and was that hard to adapt to? Um, Not really. I think, and I've said this before, but I think because I've been so tall my whole life, I've become really aloof and like I don't sort of take notice of what people are looking at around me because I've been so self-conscious of being the giant in especially as a kid um that you know I'll walk down the street and like not see anyone even if it's my auntie or uncle walking past me it's very rare that I'll take notice and I I think that people sometimes think that's me being rude but it's not it's literally a like defense mechanism um but I think now that's just who I am as well. And I I didn't really no, I didn't notice how people were treating me any different. Um, and by that time as well, it, it was different. We didn't have social media. Like people only saw me on the news or, you know, in the paper or something like that. It wasn't as um, prolific, you know, the media and the reporting as it is now. So, um, you know, once I went over to America, I was still pretty naive and young. I didn't really think too much about it. The famous incident from those Olympics we've got to ask you about is the Lisa Leslie clash. And it was a great rivalry that you had with her. For those that are sort of new to following the sport, for the best part of a decade, the two players, best players in the world were you and Lisa Leslie. And you had a bit of an incident in that gold medal game at the Games. Yes, we did. Look, they were up about 20 points. Um, and my finger got caught in her weave. I was going up for a rebound and my finger got caught in her weave. I was, I was bringing the ball down and, and um, the weave came out of her hair and I was like, yeah. And I threw it on the floor and then she picked it up and turfed it into the media section. And, um, yeah, I wish it didn't happen because um, it kind of was like, I guess, became, you know, the story of the next decade really. And her and I had a really big rivalry. Um Never really became friends, never really spoke. We played on all-star teams together in the WNBA. Um, 
But I think, well, we did speak after she retired and I just went up to her and I said, you you know, you were the greatest, you know, and I'm really honoured to have been able to play with you. But there's still been trash talk since then. And um, look, I'm not the person that I used to be. I think as a youngster, I definitely had a real big chip on my shoulder. And I think a lot of that just had to do with my childhood here in Albury and just, you know, being... That was for me, if I if I showed this angry, scary face, people would stay away. But I was never like that. I was normally just so scared that, you know, and I didn't want anyone really to sort of even notice me. So, yeah, it's, that's just how I was. I had a chip on my shoulder. I played like that. I just didn't want anyone to be able to touch me. So, and I'm still a bit like that, really. A few people would look back and say they love that. They love the fact that the two best in the sport were fierce rivals weren't buddy-buddy off the court and went at each other all the time on the court because sometimes I think a lot of older sports heads get frustrated these days when they're watching sports and the two competitors they play and then they're hugging each other afterwards. They want that old-fashioned, no, get off me, you're not my teammate, I'm here to beat you, you're here to beat me and I don't want to be your mate. Yeah, no, I get that. Um, It takes a lot of energy to not like people though, especially when you're playing against them and you know, it's something I didn't like her. I mean, I grew up idolizing her. When the WNBA started and USA Basketball Women won um, 1996 Olympics, that's the first time I saw her play and I just thought she was, oh, my God, like the queen, you know, beautiful, tall, stunning, She and the best player in the world, you know, like she was my idol. So um, she was sort of everything that I wanted to be. So I was really... I think just in awe of her when I met her and then um, yeah, we never, obviously, like I said, we never chatted or there were times we were in elevators and things together and I'd just be like, oh, my God, it's her. Um, but, you know, over time it just it became a little bit tiring, you know, and I think, you know, she's, she's so revered and um, I was just this little kid from Albury, you know, just wanting to sort of get in there and have a crack. And that's sort of how I felt, you know. What was it like then playing all-star games where they're a lot more fun and a lot more sociable? You didn't really have a lot of interactions with her then? No, not at all. Um, Different friendship groups, you know. I, at all-star games and things, I would go and have fun. You know, I just like to go for the parties. And more often than not, we all hit up the all-star game hungover, you know. And (laughs) and it was just... It was a fun time to spend with everyone um, over three or four days and just to have a break from the reality of the slog that was the WNBA season because it was a hard season. So to be able to get three days away from the team and to be able to play and enjoy and just have some fun, you know, there was always celebrities around and I was so young. I was just like, hey, I'm here. I'm down for it, you know. Um, Different now, but like back then I loved it. Well, you mentioned the WNBA. It was the perfect timing for a rising star like yourself because the league was just starting to get into full flight. Seattle had a franchise. They went 6-26 and in their first season, which landed them the number one draft pick, and they wisely used that number one draft pick on you. Mm-hmm. How far out did you think about the fact you were going to be number one, and when did you find out Seattle would be the team you'd be landing with? I, you know what, I didn't even know what a draft was. I had no idea. The only thing I'd ever heard about drafts was from my grandfather who used to talk about the bloody draft and the war. And I was like, I had no idea what it was, you know. Um, So there was, like I said, there was a lot of apprehension before I I headed overseas. And um, I didn't know what I was in for. I didn't understand the level of professionalism coming from Australia in the WNBL. Back then, we didn't have 
you know, the sorts of things they had in place, like collective bargaining agreements, the way that they treated the athletes, expectations of the athletes, and and then also seeing the way it operated. You know, in Australia, even even to a degree now, there's that sort of, you know, if you're in a team and you're one of the sort of top eight players, that they look after you like your family. You know what I mean? But over in the WNBA, it's kind of like, let's well, cutthroat. You never know when you're going to lose your job. And um, I think that was all quite full on for me. And then having to learn that over the next couple of years, I really, you know, it was just a full on time. And um, again, being so young, I really didn't think through like a lot of the stuff that I was facing. And I think that benefited me to a degree. I think that, you know, I sort of walked around with my head in the sand a little bit and it just gave me the, all I had to do was go and play, you know. Um, And I was very lucky too that I was as good as what I was. Um, You know, it meant that I could just focus on basketball and not have the other pressures and other worries about, you know, being sent to other teams, not making teams and things like that. Financially, I know you went over and played in other countries for more money at various stages in your career. When you started in the WNBA, was it lucrative enough where you could just focus on basketball and they were looking after you well financially or has it simply come a long, long way between now and then? It hasn't come as far as it should have. Um, I think in my first year, I was drafted number one and we got like $45,000 for that first year in the WNBA. So, and I think that that remained like a similar figure for many, many years. I think now it's lifted. I'm not sure what to, but I know that the highest paid players are earning somewhere around the vicinity of $220,000, $230,000. So in the WNBA, which... In my day, it was like 110 maybe for a max player. So it's a little bit of growth, but compared to what the men are making and then, you know, even what we've just seen with the Matildas here and the visibility and the ratings, the TV ratings and things like that, um, you'll find that like a lot of the games that we played in had great ESPN ratings and um, numbers across TV and people were sort of shouting, oh, you can't ask for more money, you don't get the ratings. It's like, yeah, yeah, we do. (laughs) Go on and ask the questions. Um, and I think now even uh, the visibility and the way that the girls are playing and it's it's unbelievable the work that they're doing. So it'll be interesting to see how that pays off for the next collective bargaining agreement. But women's sport, the, the tide is definitely turning. Um, it's good. So it's turning, it's heading in the right direction, but it's not where it needs to be or should be. No, no. There's definitely not sort of a level playing field at the moment. And, and it's not to say that we should be earning exactly the same amount as what the men are earning, they play more games in a season, they play longer games, it's different, a longer season and things like that. So I think there's other factors, but I think in terms of equitability, I think it's really important um, to sort of weigh it all up equally, you know. Um, I just, I think that uh, women's sport, there's so many barriers to participating um, and one of those is, yeah, having to play you around, not getting any time off to look after your body, and having to go and play in Europe and then America and then all these have your country, your national team commitments and everything like that all wrapped up into it, it's very, it's hard. And, you know, often female athletes have to sacrifice families and the other things that, you know, really make life, um, well, are important in life, you know. So financially that first year in America, as you said, you've got 45000 Was that enough to get you through or are you already <laughs> thinking I need to go and play in other leagues in the off-season to subsidise the salary? Well, I was playing WNBL in Canberra, but I think my body um, wasn't used to the grind of the back-to-back games, uh, sort of three or four games a week. Um, 
the level of physicality over there, it was a whole different ball game. And I mean, I got into a bit of a cycle of injuries and things like that. So I came back, I had surgery after that first year on my shoulder and then um, played the rest of the WNBL season, I think, with Canberra. And then, uh, yeah, back to the WNBA and I sort of did that for a few years um, and then I headed overseas. Well, it certainly worked because you burst onto the scene in the WNBA. You had a great rookie season and things went upwards and upwards. 2003, you were named the league MVP, the first Australian to do so. What was that like? I know you say you can't remember a lot of things. It's not about the individual accolades, but to win a WNBA MVP is something very, very special. Yeah, look, that was a, a really special time. Um, we didn't even make the playoffs. They, oh, we did make the playoffs that year, but we we fell out pretty early, I think. And then um, we actually had a new coach that year, Anne Donovan, and she, she's passed away. She passed away a couple of years ago now, but she um, was she played for America, um, actually played against my mom, believe it or not. And six foot eight, great post player. Um, and she really works um, with me. So I guess the big thing in the pros is the athletes are meant to go over there. You don't, it's not about, you know, training them or like spending time doing individual work. You're a professional now, like you don't, you're not going to get individual training sessions like you do in development programs. Um, and she did, she worked with me on my inside game. Like she took time out, we did individuals, um, and she really, really helped me. I mean, I was very athletic. I was sort of a shooter, sort of a floater, like shot the ball outside the key. I didn't really like banging, but she sort of changed my game and got me inside and got me with the moves. And I had a couple of moves, but she really sort of, I guess, gave me the confidence to get inside and really bang with the best of them. And I think that changed, obviously, that changed my game. Well, you mentioned Ann Donovan a year later. You'd create history and she'd create history. You went on to win the title and she'd become the first female to win a WNBA title as head coach. So that must have been just a wonderfully exciting time. I know you say you can't remember the exact time when the final buzzer <laughs> went, but I've watched it back and the crowd went ballistic. Yeah, that was a special time at Key Arena. So it's Climate Pledge Arena now. It's been refurbished, but it was Key Arena back then. I think we had about eighteen or 20,000 fans in that stadium. And, yeah, the sound, you couldn't hear a thing. That whole game was just, oh, my God. Uh, it was the best of three, and uh, the last two games were in Seattle. And, gee, it was, it was such a special time. It was just, it, it, yeah, I can't even... Um, recall you know how how I felt but I think when you're that young too you take a lot of things for granted and especially on the ride that I had been on it was just part of my journey and I didn't really when you're in it you don't really think about how great or the impact that you have or are going to have it's just it's part of your life and you just go with it and and that's it um it was special it was special for you and it was probably more special for the people of Seattle. We know they absolutely really? love their basketball. A couple of years later, the NBA team, the Seattle Supersonics, would nick off to Oklahoma City, and it looked yeah. like the Seattle Storm might be going down a similar mm. path until some local businesswomen stepped in, raised $10 million, bought the team, yeah. and kept them in Seattle. Yeah, yeah. So we were owned um, up until that point by Howard Shields, who was the owner of Starbucks, and... Um, yeah, they. it was funny because we were quite successful and obviously the Sonics were just, they'd been around for so long and their legacy was so incredible in Seattle. And um, 
yeah, when that happened and there was talk of going to Oklahoma, everyone was pretty scared. But this this working group of four women, four businesswomen in in Seattle, took over the team, and um, yeah, they they kept it there and they've grown the franchise since. And it was a different business model, um, obviously, but. What they were able to achieve um, in my years and then post my years with Sue Bird and Brianna Stewart, Jewel Lloyd, um, they it was a bit of a dynasty that they created and uh, it was awesome to watch. It was awesome to be a part of, but it's um, it's a great organisation, very, very awesome organisation. Did you feel even more loved in Seattle after staying put, having lost the Sonics? Yes. Yeah, we had so much support. Um Look, even when I go back to Seattle now, people just, but they love their basketball. They love their storm. I think, the, like I said, the legacy that's been created. Um, and Sue Bird, you know, she's obviously been at the front of that for, for many, many years. She's just retired this year. Um, she won four championships for the Seattle Storm and, and took them to the greatest heights. You know, they're probably one of the greatest teams that ever have played in the WNBA and it's just amazing. You know, they're rebuilding at the moment, but um, the investment into women's sport has really paid off in Seattle and I think it's you're sort of seeing what's happening with the Matildas now. I think in America in particular, that movement has been going for a long time and it's it's been incredible to watch. Well, in 2010, under this new ownership group, you won personally your second championship. Do you remember that one more clearly because by that stage you're a little bit more down the track in your career, a little bit older and potentially wiser? Did you appreciate it a bit more? I don't know whether I was wiser. Um, <laughs> I It was really funny because, you know, we won the championship. I had um, some Achilles issues as well, so I was in a fair bit of pain, got through the rest of that season. We had like one week. No, I reckon we had two days between our last game in Atlanta, um, which we won, and then getting on an aeroplane and flying to the Czech Republic and meeting the Australian team there for a World Cup. And so you're, we're on this massive high. We're in the championship. It was incredible. Um, and then fly over to the World Cup and we bombed out of uh, medal contention at the World Cup. So the highest of highs to the literally rock bottom because for me that was to not be able to perform um, the way that we wanted to and to not medal with the Australian team was just unheard of after everything that we'd achieved. And um, that was brutal. Like that really sort of took me. Yeah, it was. It took a while to get over that. But um, look, it's sport. It does that. <laughs> it, it's a great leveler, isn't it? You've just won the title and you're flat about what happened with the Opals. But the Opals yeah. was such a key part of your career and you were so instrumental in the golden era for the Opals, three straight Olympic Games, winning the silver medal. And I yeah. say winning the silver medal because you look at the Team USA each and every time. They were simply spectacular. They probably could have fielded mm. maybe three teams at times that would have been gold medalists. So it was yeah. not realistic probably to think we were going to beat them. So to come second, those three Olympics was the equivalent of winning gold. Yeah, look, I mean, it was brutal. When you go into Olympics and World Cups, you're always going thinking, you know, we're going to win. And I think for me, I was probably a little bit um, complacent being that we'd, you know, been so successful um, previously. It is so hard to win medals, particularly in basketball. Um, and I, it's funny because even having the conversation about the Matildas, the Matildas this last few months, um, 
It's so hard when every single country in the world plays your sport. And like from coming from a country that doesn't have the same population or the same sort of support for those sports, it's we we do so well. We've done so well. Um, even the Matildas have done so well to get to where they are. And it is hard to medal. And um the the level of competition is just getting better and better and better. And and yes, you gotta continue investing in these programs and making sure high performance is is doing the right thing by the athletes and they're up to standard, you know. And um it's incredible what we were able to achieve for so long and what we're still achieving. And um yeah, it's it is amazing. And look, the America are, you know, the pinnacle. Like you said, they probably could have won gold, silver and bronze in they still probably could. They've just got so many athletes that are remarkable. Um, but what we've been able to achieve has been so special. And yeah, I think our legacy is is pretty, pretty amazing. It is amazing. There's no doubt about that. Now, Lauren, I like this trivia question. I can play it with people around our age and younger. Name every country other than the US win a gold medal in women's basketball at the Olympics in your lifetime. In the Olympics? Yes. Oh, okay. Um you already know this. Do you know the answer? I don't know the answer. So I'm going to say um, Soviet Union, probably. Were they one? There's none. The US have won every one. None. Are you kidding? In my lifetime. So that, yes. Yeah, not surprising. That was a trick so, question. You got me. Yeah, but it sums up the dominance. They're they're amazing, you know, and I think that's, for me, that like that chip on my shoulder that I always had. It's because they are the best, you know, and we're out there trying to beat them. Um, we were always the underdogs, and I'm not afraid to say it. Like there's, you know, like I said, we talk about population and it's what we've been able to achieve has been incredible. So I, and people often say to me, oh, you didn't get the gold. It's like, yeah, yeah, didn't. You well, know, winning a bronze medal in London was actually so damn special because we finished on a win. That was like winning the gold to me. So that was my next question. In a little bizarre quirk, was it more fun winning the bronze because your final game it was, was a victory? So much fun. Yeah, yeah it was so- incredible. <laughs> it felt so good. I wasn't crying. I wasn't going, "Oh, you're terrible. You're never going to beat them." I was going, "Yes, we just won." I felt like now, we won th- gold. So I thought I knew a lot about Lauren Jackson, our greatest ever basketballer. But when you do the research, sometimes things stick out at you, and you're like, "I had no idea about that," and I had that sensation doing the research for this chat, when in 2007 you were the MVP of the South Korean Basketball League. How on earth did you end up there? I don't know if I was the MVP of that league. I, I can't remember. Um, Yeah, oh. no, well, that was my first time out of Australia. So I played in the WNBL. I played back-to-back seasons, WNBL, USA, WNBA. So this year I decided, no, I'm going to go and play over in South Korea. I got this opportunity to play with a club over there and I loved it. That was the time of my life. Um, I couldn't understand a thing the coach was saying, so all I had to do was focus on scoring and didn't know the players, didn't know anything, but I just played basketball. And then um, after every game, so there was one foreigner per team over there and because South Korea is so small, a lot of the teams, the men's and the women's teams, would get together in, you know, Taiwan and we would go nuts and then get back and it, there was just no responsibility whatsoever. It was just so long as you were performing, it did not matter. Didn't understand anything. So how did you anything. communicate? I had a translator. She wasn't that great though. <laughs> so could you talk to your coach, to your teammates? How did you order food down the shops? 
No, well, she got all my food for me and everything. Um, the tra- the trans, she was pretty good like that. Like she could get food and everything. But in terms of communing, communicating with my teammates, there were a couple that I became sort of friendly with, and we would like gesture and like they'd take me out to dinner, and it was such an investment <laughs> in like relationship building when you don't understand what they're saying. So, but you know what? Funnily enough, I got to know them well enough even through the language barrier that um, I've still got friendships with some of these girls. It's obviously, it's very limited in terms of what we can actually communicate. But like, it's, if I see them, I'm, you know, all love, like they're beautiful people. And the beautiful thing about sport, because if you were not a basketballer, you would never have met these people. And all these years later, they're still a part of your life when you see them. That's right. That's right. And look, I think most of my teammates are like, you know, even the last few years we've had, it's been sad. We've lost a few teammates and coaches and things like that. Um, But when we get together, you know, it doesn't sort of matter what happened, whether we liked each other in the past. I think just having that common goal and that bond um, and having gone through a lot of really hard times, really great times, it, it does bring people together. Now, tell us about South Korea as a country. What was it like living there and what were some things that you found quite different to Australia? Oh, I loved it. I, I think South Korea was probably my favourite um, other than America because it's, you know, it was so easy and it became my home over there. Um, South Korea was my favourite. I just loved it. I loved the shopping. I loved the people. I loved the culture. Um, it had a great, um, there was a lot of Australians over there, diplomats and things like that. So sort of met a lot of people and made some friends over there. Um, But, yeah, just really enjoyed the culture, just great people, kind. Um, Yeah, I had time in my life. Some of my greatest friends are from there. So, yeah, I do miss that. That was a great season, yeah. I'll add South Korea to the bucket list because it's somewhere that I didn't think we'd be discussing when we went through the Lauren Jackson journey, but good to see (sighs) a positive story from there. What about playing in China and living in China? Oh, God, China was hard. Um. I was playing in Harbin and that's sort of, I don't know if you know where that is. It's like right up the north of China, Siberia, near Siberia. And it's so cold. It's so cold. It rarely snows, but there's just ice everywhere. So they've got the beautiful ice sculptures um, over winter and you get to go in and just, it's just ice. <sighs> like That's all I can say. All I remember is like sliding across roads in cars and it's like, three lanes, but there's actually like seven lanes of cars driving across and beeping and honking and running into each other. It was bizarre. Strange. It, it was a very strange time. Um, but I, I enjoyed it there too. It's really similar. The girls were beautiful. My teammates were gorgeous. They were so kind and, and lovely. Um, different sort of structure in terms of how, um, how, how we all lived. Uh, the girls all lived in these sort of dorms on the side of the basketball court. So they'd have like four to a room and that's where they lived, eat, train, like, and everything. And I, I stayed in a hotel and would just sort of come in for training. But, yeah, it's it's they do it differently over there. And I think at a clubs and that's how they come through the clubs and then play for that for their CBL teams. But, yeah, it's, it's different. Um, so, you know, it's hard when you're alone in those countries too. Um, because you, you don't have anyone to talk to. China's a lot bigger, so I couldn't just go and meet up with other foreigners anywhere. Um, and I was injured too. That's where I hurt my knee the first time, so it was a bit rough. What was the language barrier like in China? Oh, 
Well, it was different. It was a little bit different in China just because I, you know, I, the barrier was there. There were, a barrier existed, absolutely. But, um, yeah, I think just because I was in a bit of pain and everything as well, it was just difficult to, I don't think I wanted to communicate as much either. I just really wanted to ice and, and be left alone. Um, but it was, look, I had it, like I said, the teammates, you learn to communicate with your teammates through that common goal of winning. Um, and those girls were beautiful. My teammates were absolutely gorgeous humans. So it's easy to like find that common ground with your teammates. It's the coaches and the administrative staff that it's a little bit harder with. Now, the third international country you played in, and this was the one I found the most fascinating, was <laughs> Russia. Because it sounds like you went there on some very appealing money. What led to that and how different was it financially to the WNBA? Yeah, look, Russia was was a trip. Um, it What led to it was I actually – so the owner, I don't even know where to start, honestly. He he sort of weaved his way into my life early on. Um, how? He helped. How? Well, I'm not even allowed to sort of go into all of that. I did go and play for a month after a WNBL season. Um, he just came out of the blue and said, look, I, I need a player for a month. Come over here to Ekaterinburg. Ekaterinburg had only been opened up to to the Western society for, I don't know, not long. It was where the Tsar and his family were killed and, oh, my God, it was just such a full-on experience. Anyway, he paid me like a hundred grand to go over and play three games. And I reckon I might've played three minutes in those three games. What? And yeah, it was bizarre. <laughs> uh, whatever. <laughs> I was flying on private jets over there and that would have been, I think it was like 2000 and I want to say beginning of 2004. Anyway, the WNBL, uh, the winner of the WNBL season, I think the following year had to go over to Russia and play in this like world um, tournament, which was a world club championship, basically. So there was um, a couple of teams from Russia, Europe, America, and Australia would go over. And we played a couple of years later in this, and Shabtide sort of said, when you play in Europe or when you leave Australia, you're playing with me. And I was like, sure, no worries, mate. I had no idea what, again, walking around with my head in the sand. Anyway... The opportunity came up to go over there again and I took it. Um, I had a couple of friends on the team at that point, um, Sue Byrne, Diana Tarassi and Tina Thompson was playing. Um, so it was a pretty stacked team. It was loaded. Um, and that was in the EuroLeague and the Russian League. And uh, I I went over there and and that's, that's how I got over there. And he... Um, what a crazy guy, you know. He was he's he's now gone. He was assassinated in two thousand and nine. Um, but yeah, it was a trip. Look, there was a lot of stories that I absolutely cannot talk about, but um I can tell you it changed my life forever. It sounds just surreal and the day of his death was the Melbourne Cup day in two thousand and nine. Shocking yeah. big crime scene. And it was a shocking yep. crime scene, unfortunately, what happened to him. He was in a bulletproof car that they managed to still shoot him dead in, and they found $10 million worth of cash in the car. 
Yeah, and like AKs and everything in the boot, I know. And the, the funny thing is like that car, I travelled in that car in that seat with him so many times in the like the years leading up to that and um, he was actually on his way to pick up teammates of mine from his office. Um, the only reason I wasn't there at that point in time was because I'd fractured my back in Seattle and I was rehabbing to get back there that following month. And... Yeah, Sue called me. Sue called me that night. She was like, so this was the night before, um, yeah, the Melbourne Cup. And she just said, I've got some bad news. You know, Shabtai's been killed. And yeah, the next morning I was on a plane over to uh, Israel where he was buried. So it was, again, leading up to that, I, I remember I was sitting with my uncle probably in July. Now, maybe a bit later. It would have been, yep, September probably. And after the WBA season, Michael sort of said, how do we get you out of going going back to Russia? You know, how do we get you out of that? And look, the money was so good uh, and I was pretty young and I wanted to sort of maximise my opportunity of making money at that point in time and it just had become part of, I didn't like it, but like I had to go and do it, you know. It became part of my, my yearly thing and so I, I looked at my uncle and I said, look, if Shabtai, he, if he gets murdered or if he has a heart attack, then I'll get out. And then, yeah, he got murdered. It was sad. He was a good one. He treated me very well. Um, but it was, you could, there was a lot, like there was something going on. And I, I think, like I said, just buried my head in the sand for a long time. Did you need any trauma treatment after it? Do you look back on that period now and think, geez, that was just so surreal and I can't believe I went through that experience or is it something that along the way was just part of your journey and you've learned to live with? Yeah, look, I think along the way it was just part of my journey. I was, I'll be completely honest with you, I was on antidepressants from my second year over there. I couldn't, I really did struggle um, living that lifestyle and being so far away from my family and, you know, I didn't want my family to come and visit. My brother came over my first year over there for a couple of days just to, um, he was doing a bit of a, a tour for his, I think his 21st, one of his birthdays. I can't remember what it was. Anyway, he came over um, for a couple of days and I'd always, I sort of said to my mum and dad, you know, I'm not, um, I don't want you to come over and visit. I don't want you to be over here. And it wasn't only just because of the environment. It was it was cold. There was snow everywhere. There was ice. Like I just didn't want anyone to get hurt. Like it was a, a very strange environment to be in. And um, look, it made me a better person. Uh, it went after he was assassinated. I came back and went to university, started studying, studying gender studies. And I, I wanted to understand that sort of power dynamic between men and women um obviously the cultures are very different um between eastern europe and australia but still it really opened my eyes to a lot of things that i think had been in my head but i couldn't quite identify what was going on and why i felt the way i did so i went to university and i i got my degree in in gender gender studies or gender and diversity and um i think that was my <laughs> you know, my treatment. I sort of found my way out of whatever I was going through um, and I became, I feel like I became a much better person after that period in my life, yeah. Now, you spoke glowingly about your time in South Korea, in China, in the US. Do you look back fondly on your time living in Russia? Um, look, I mean, there's elements of it that I do. You know, I, like I said, I called him my Russian papa. He yeah, treated me so well. So, 
if I hadn't had the experiences and seen the things that I had seen and done the things, well, done, played, whatever, I wouldn't be the person that I am today. So I feel like having that experience absolutely made me a better person. It made me more aware. It um, it changed who I am, I think, fundamentally as a human. And I'll be forever thankful of that. You know, his family um, are still very, I'm very fond of. Um, I, You know, it's my teammates were great, but it was a really hard time for me, you know. That's okay. I got through it. They're going to make a movie about you one day. I can just feel it. And the only thing longer than the list of achievements with your basketball <laughs> career, unfortunately, the only thing that gets close is probably the injuries you've suffered yes. along the way. And I'll just, I'll just rattle off a couple for the listeners and viewers. We've had shin splints, stress fractures, broken bones, shoulders, fractured back, knees, and nearly 40 operations. How are uh-huh. you as fit and healthy today after going through all of that? And how did you survive, not just physically, but also mentally? Oh, it's a good question. Um, yeah, injuries have been a part of my life, you know, even this year. Um, so, you know, obviously the comeback, I made a comeback and We'll get to the again. comeback in just a tick. Yeah, so the way look, a lot of I think a lot of the injuries that I had in my first my first time around had kind of like gone by the wayside. And I think as you get when you're younger, you think you can get through anything, right? Like it's just you you get an injury, right, cool, four weeks, get through it, you're back on your feet. Um, as you get older, it's not that easy. And then the recovery process is a lot harder. And I think um toward the end of my first career, it really took its toll on me emotionally and I didn't know how to work to sort of get on top of all of that. And then my knee thing just absolutely rocked me, you know. So it was hard. Like mentally it was hard, yep. You've had shocking luck with the injuries and it does lead you to retire, but you retire the first Australian in the Basketball Hall of Fame, three WNBA MVPs, two WNBA championships, countless other awards. You've done everything and you just sail off into the sunset, you retire, you're looking forward to all these things. But as only Lauren Jackson could do, there's another twist in the tale. Tell us yeah. about the comeback. How did it start? And did it all come down to a call from Tom Ma? A call from Tom Ma. Um, look, the, the comeback happened because I, well, I wanted to play for, I wanted to play locally here in mixed basketball with my my friends here in Aubrey. And I couldn't train because my knee would blow up and my hips would blow up. And I was like, well, I need to get fit because I've, you know, I also put on about 25 kilos when I had two children. And um, so the the biggest thing for me was trying to lose a few kilos, trying to get fit in the gym. And yeah, I, I just found consistency. Um, I've talked about my journey, particularly with medicinal cannabis um, and CBD oil. It sort of gave me that consistency at the beginning to get back in the gym and train every single day. And um, I started just seeing the benefits of that um, I started losing weight. I got back on court. I was able to run. And then um, one of my, well, my best friend here, he was the assistant coach for the NBL1 team, the women's team, and he, we, we were just messing around. You know, we were shooting and stuff, and he sort of said, well, would you play again? And I was like, mate, if I get through another two months of this training and I get on court, I'll be as shocked as anyone, but sure. Like, I'll sign. We'll see where it goes. And, yeah, like I, I got back on court at the end of April um, and played NBL1. Um, I reckon I played probably two or three games and then I got COVID on my birthday. Um, I came back from that, played a couple more games, and then I got uh, a call from 
the Australian team just sort of saying, look, you know, we'd love you to jump through a few hoops to see if you fit enough to potentially like train and go to the training camp. And I mean, I'd played four or five games in, in eight years or something ridiculous like that. Um, or six years. And then I don't know, like in my head, I was like, sure, you know, I'll give it a crack. I'll never make it. But I was sort of in, I was just doing it. Everything sort of came and I was like, oh, I'll come, but I won't get through it. I'll, yeah, and I got through it. I jumped through the hoops. I did okay. I got through every challenge, every sort of test that I had to do and shocked myself probably more than anyone. My parents definitely too. And next thing you know, I'm on my way over to New York and, you know, in the top 15 or whatever. And I never thought I would make it. I really didn't. The conversations I had with the people closest to me was physically, I don't think I'll be able to do it. I don't think I'm good enough. I'm too old. I'm a mum. I'm a single mum. I've got two children. How are the kids going to handle it? Like, I didn't, I work. I work. <laughs> like, it was bizarre. It is, it is unbelievable and it's such a great story. How hard was it? And it doesn't sound like it was hard because you don't it sound like you hard. have any sort of, no, the next question I'm saying, to go from oh, being yeah. the number one banana, the superstar of the Australian team, which you've always been, you can say that's not the case. It's a big team. We're not mucking around here. Lauren Jackson was always clearly our number one player on a team to then going back into the team as a role player. Ah, Yeah, look, I think because I was so humbled by the whole journey and I think too, like leaving the sport, becoming an administrator, people, you know, like I think I have become so humbled along the way purely because I've been able to see it from the other side, you know, and also too, like I said, I've changed. I've changed so much since I was an athlete. So getting the opportunity to go inside and play with those girls, I remember the first training camp back and I was just like, oh, this is, this is, um, they're going to hate me. Like they're not going to want me around. And I know how I would have felt when I was an athlete, how this would have made me feel. Um, but they just embraced me. They were so supportive. Um, and I think they realized that I was there on merit, you know, on what I could do. Um, and I said to them right from day dot that, like, I'm not trying to be a superstar. I'm not trying to come in here and change anything or, like, I just want to be the best teammate that I can possibly be for you. And and that's who, like, that was my mindset. I was, I didn't care if I played minutes. I didn't care. I just wanted to be there for them. Um, I was getting another opportunity to do things the thing that I love the most with two little boys watching me um, and basketball Australia were incredible. Like that was so incredible around the support that they offered me and with work. And I, I was so lucky, you know, the whole process was so humbling that I was just so thankful to be there. And yeah, that those girls were incredible too. That it was awesome. It was such a cool thing to do. And it's probably the highlight, of, the biggest highlight of my whole career, to be honest. I'm not surprised, especially the Lauren Jackson movie. The final scene I thought might be a bit unrealistic. The bronze medal game up against Canada. For those that are not familiar, talk to us about that night. Well, the night before, we played at 8 o'clock against China and I reckon I got about two minutes on court, which is fine. Um, But we lost by one point, you know, and the girls were shattered. Everyone was devastated because, you know, obviously it would have sent us through to the gold medal match. Um. And then we had to back up. Uh, I think we get back to our hotel room by 11 or 12. 
everyone's shattered. And then at 1, 1 p.m., we had to play the next day against Canada. So everyone's tired. We didn't have time to really even think, let alone sort of process what had just happened. And I, I remember starting to get ready for that game. And in my head, I was like, oh, I'm so tired. This is, this is too much you know I'm just I hurt my body I was getting like one aesthetic in my feet to play like it was just it I felt like crap and then something happened and in my head I was just like what are you doing this is the last time you're probably ever going to play for Australia you've you you've done something no one else has done like you should be thankful like this is the greatest thing you could have ever done and you're here and it changed and all of a sudden I got this like burst of energy I got very emotional um and yeah, it changed, and that's what happened. Like I, I got I don't you know. I played off. well. You <laughs> went off. You were making shots from everywhere. You were absolutely dominant. You scored thirty points, and the ovation that you got at the end of the game is as loud as I've ever heard. I I had not made a turnaround jump shot in the low post for seven years until that game. I couldn't make one. You go back and watch every shot during that tournament. Not one of them was a turnaround jump shot. I hadn't made one in NBL one. It was the strangest thing that could have possibly happened. Someone was looking over me for sure. But you know what? I just wanted to help those girls win. And oh, whether it happened like that or not, it still would have been the, like the best thing ever. Because I worked so hard to get back there. I worked so hard. And my kids got to see me and... Yeah, I'm not. I wasn't the person that I was before. I wasn't the player. But gee, you know, I think when you work so hard for something and you put your mind to something, to be able to see it come to fruition, it's just incredible. There's no doubt about that. And you have been absolutely incredible. They're still selling the number 15 Seattle Storm jersey yeah. in Rebel Sports around the country as well. So that just goes to show how immensely popular you still are, which is fantastic. We're going to end by asking for your career highlight. There are so many to choose from. You just spoke about that performance against Canada, but there are one or two others that you look back on and it does really warm your heart. Oh, look, I've had so many great moments. Um, but, I, yeah, like I, I would say my greatest, fondest moment would have been last year for sure with the Opals and Sandy as coach and, and Tess and the girls. That was just amazing but um I think the world cup gold that we we got in 2006 that's something that I guess I never thought that I would achieve um and we did that was so special um and then yeah the championships for Seattle were great um but I think overall like my my greatest achievements have been since I've had my kids you know being a mom like working, I love my job, I love she hoops. Um, and then I I think just being grateful, like the fact that I am so grateful and I know what I've got, um, I think that's the most special part, you know, for me now, like still having the opportunity to play if I want to, um, but not taking anything for granted. I know I said last question, but I'm now going to sneak one more in. How special was it that your boys uh... – probably old enough now to appreciate what you did last year for Australia and they got to see mum play. So it's not them watching old tapes or people telling them how amazing mum was. They got to witness it firsthand. That that last, that tournament uh, in Sydney was, 
gosh, it was amazing, you know, like to have the support um, there but to have my little boys there. Uh, they stayed at the hotel next to us and every night I got to go and sort of cuddle them and put them into bed. After the games, I'd walk over there and see them and say goodnight. Um, every breakfast I would have with them, it was just to be able to share that with your babies, is there's nothing better, you know, and uh, I don't know, like I said, I think them seeing me work, my job, to see them having, like, knowing that I train every day, they know how hard I work. I just want to be a good role model for them and I want them to have the opportunity to achieve whatever they want to achieve as well and I really feel like they, they can, they know they can. Well, Lauren, you've been more than just a good role model for them. You've been a wonderful, wonderful role model for young boys and especially girls across our great nation. So thank you so much for having a chat to us. Well done for everything you've achieved both on and off the basketball court. And thank you, Lauren Jackson. Thank you. Hey lads, a guy in the community reckons we take the overs. Do we trust him? Well, his username is Big Stats Guy. Say no more. Connect with a community of like-minded punters only in Labros communities. T's and C's apply and available on website. What are you really gambling with?